0: The excitement is in the air. Today was the day. Wesleyan versus Brown. It is an especially chilly day, the 17th day of October in 1914. Wesleyan was down by seven as Cy Clark ran out onto the field. The quarterback yells hike and Cy readies himself to catch the ball as his quarterback meets eyes with him. All of a sudden, a look of panic washed over the quarterback's face and then everything went black. When Cy came to a few hours later, he realized that his days of playing football were over. Welcome to SKB. I'm your host, Caroline, a university biology professor and true crime junkie. Thanks for joining me on my quest to understand evil. This is the story of Cannibal Brothers. The Clark family was seemingly troubled from their beginning. Let's go back a few years to meet some folks from that lost generation or individuals who came of age during World War I many of the men in this generation died in the war so it was an unfilled generation coming of age during instability head injuries generational mental illness the spoils of war what else could contribute to the creation of two monsters in one family let's see if we can figure it out silas skidmore clark was born october 27th 1893 Not much is known about his childhood or about his close ancestors, although Silas could trace his ancestry back to the Mayflower. Silas attended Wesleyan University of Middleton, Connecticut, and he played football in 1914. He suffered a concussion while he was playing football, and this ended his ability to play football anymore. Early football was a lot more dangerous than it is today. Um, It seemed like the early days of football were a lot more similar to rugby. They wore leather helmets and really not much padding at all. Cy's concussion was so bad that he couldn't play football anymore. Well, what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that Cy would have been a good candidate for um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which CTE is the uh, football player's brain injury. Actually, it was first described, got in the early 1920s um, as punch- punch drunk um, disorder, and it was first described in in boxers. But CTE comes from repetitive head trauma. So it can be, it doesn't have to be many full-on concussions. It can be, you know, when you're playing any kind of contact sport, your head gets hit a lot. And even if it doesn't knock you out, your brain is still sloshing around in the skull, in the cranium. And so it's like bouncing off the front of the skull, bouncing off the back of the skull, the sides of the skulls. And it's, it's, there's a lot more movement in the brain than you would think. So all of these constant micro concussions, you could call them, those, those will lead to um, some pretty severe Problems or could lead to some pretty severe problems much later. There was a study done by Boston University and they looked at something like 277, 260 something uh, former football players, and the only way they can diagnose CT is. Um, after somebody dies, they can do, during autopsy, they can look at the brain and determine whether or not the person had CTE because the way CTE manifests itself in damage in the brain, it's in a particular pattern. But before I get into how, like what that damage looks like, uh, CTE, so say you start playing um, football at age five. You are, you have 10 times the risk of developing CTE than if you start playing football at say 14 or any of these contact sports, boxing, um, hockey, those are the three biggies, football, boxing, and hockey are the ones that are most correlated with um, chronic traumatic um, encephalopathy. So if you start at 14, you, tend, you have 10 times less risk of developing CTE than say you start playing football at five. Well, in order to become a professional football player, I mean, I know there are a few fo- professional football players out there, um, and like there's a few basketball players, professional basketball players out there who didn't really play at high school at all. They didn't start playing that sport until college, but that's pretty rare. So, in order to make it into professional football, the amount of time one must put into developing their athleticism to become good enough. I mean, people have natural athletic talent, but to be good enough to play in the NFL, you really have to have not only that natural talent, but you also have to work really hard at it. I would imagine, I've never been in the NFL, but I would imagine that you would have to work pretty hard at it. So if you start playing football at a young age, you're getting these, even if you're not playing tackle football, kids still fall and hit their heads or they'll bash into each other, blocking each other. And that can cause little micro concussions within the brain. Well, over time, what happens is, starts to cause damage to your neurons of your brain. So take like, I don't know, take some, take a couple of raw eggs and put them inside a glass jar and just shake them shake them. See how long it takes them to break, right? Because they are very delicate. Don't do hard-boiled eggs, but do raw eggs. Um, Still in the shell, but find something hard to put them in, put some, um, put some water in there, and then shake them and see what happens. When you shake them really hard, they'll break apart quickly. When you shake them slow and not quite as hard, they still break apart. It just takes longer. All right, so here's what happens. Your nervous system is made up of these structures called neurons and neurons are microscopic they um they're a specialized kind of tissue that transmits electrical signals right and when i say electrical signals um, when i say electricity or electrical signals i'm referring to the ions that help establish um, electrical gradients within cells so ions are things like sodium potassium chloride Um, calcium those are ions so neurons have a cell body and then there are these dendrites or they're like branches that look like they're branching off of the neuron but they're actually coming towards the neuron but these dendrites are they're receiving information from the external environment and when I say external environment I mean outside of the neuron not outside of the body necessarily and So they're bringing in this external information. It comes into the neuron, the neuron sort of reads it and then sends a signal down, something called an axon. You could equate the neuron and the axon to an electrical outlet. The neuron is the electricity inside that outlet. And that's about as much as I know about electricity. So I won't go too far into it there. But the neuron is that electric, the the electrical generating thing that's behind the outlet. Then the axon is the cord. That's taking the signal from that elect that from that electric box or whatever. It's taking that signal to whatever um, whatever it is that you're trying to power. Okay, so that cord, the electrical cord, that or the electric cord, that you could you could use that as a, as a, an analogy for what an axon is looks like and what it does. Right, but axons are tiny, 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 microscopic. They're um, smaller than than human hair, even the axons are thinner, I should say, than human hair. So in CTE, what happens, well, so the structure of the structure of the axon, it's all nerve tissue, and it forms a particular pattern. And in order for that pattern to stay where it is, it needs to have little stabilizing proteins kind of scattered throughout of it, sort of like a template or a scaffolding. So, these stabilizing proteins, they help to provide structure and support to the axon. Those proteins are called tau proteins, T-A-U. As a neuron becomes damaged and starts to um, almost die off, the tau proteins will start to break apart from the axon. And when that happens, the tau proteins are able to then find one another, and they'll start to form these clumps. So the formation of the clumps and the pattern in which these clumps are formed, that is how CTE is diagnosed after death or posthumously. Early symptoms of CTE that usually appear sometime when a patient is in late 20s, early 30s, The symptoms of CTE are things like um, problems with impulse control, aggression, depression, paranoia, all those things that you hear about when one of these athletes loses his mind and kills himself or kills his whole family and then himself. There's this aggression and this inability to control impulses. So that's problematic. Um, Along with that comes confusion, impaired judgment. And eventually, progressive dementia will happen. Now, the majority of people who are diagnosed with CTE after death, the majority of those people weren't necessarily violent or particularly aggressive. The last time I checked, the worst case of CTE that they have seen was in Aaron Hernandez. He was, God, how old was he when he died? 25, 26. And he had CTE worse than any case they had seen in men, you know, two, two and a half, three times his age. We can't know for sure if Cy Clark had CTE or any other kind of um, brain trauma due to playing contact sports for you know the majority of his life. We'll never know that for sure. But we can see it in some of the later behaviors that he exhibits. But before we get to who Cy Clark was, let's take a quick break here to hear from some of this week's sponsors. Sai's father, Frederick, was a lawyer with firms in Mount Vernon and White Plains, New York. Frederick had run for mayor of Mount Vernon, but he lost. So the idea was that sai the idea always was that Sai would become a lawyer as well. Once he graduated from Wesleyan University of Middleton, Connecticut, he started law school at NYU in 1915. However, in 1916, he dropped out of law school temporarily to join the Army's 7th Regiment, in order to fight in the Mexican border war. Tsai's military hero was General Blackjack Pershing. He's the one that captured Geronimo. Pershing was ordered on December 20th of 1913 to take command of the 8th brigade at Presidio, which is an army base or was an army base in San Francisco. In 1915, Pershing's wife and his three daughters, ages three, seven and eight, they died during a fire at the Presidio while he was at Fort Bliss. So in 1960, 1960, in 1916, he volunteered to lead a group down into Mexico to, to find Pancho Villa. So Pancho Villa, um, he was a Mexican revolutionary that had attacked the border town of Columbus, New Mexico, killing 18 citizens. So Pershing assembled 10,000 men and he went into northern Mexico to find Pancho Villa, but they were not successful because Villa had been hiding in a cave, letting his troops fight in his name. Cy Clark was part of Pershing's troop and was there as the U.S. troops fought like battles 350 miles into Mexico. Once he was done fighting with General Pershing, he returned to New York in 1917 and he finished law school. So one would think he would become a lawyer. However, he decided that he wanted to join the fighting in World War I just a few days after he graduated from law school. Sai was part of an attack to halt the Germans offense. He did a lot of hand-to-hand and bayonet battle, and this kind of battle changed the course of World War I for some reason. I believe a bayonet is a rifle with a knife on the end of it. So if you can imagine the kind of combat where you're stabbing and shooting and fighting with your fists, that sort of hand-to-hand comment must be terrifying. Sai was on the front lines in France um, fighting in Flanders, in St. Mihiel, I can't pronounce words, so please excuse me. And during the St. Mihiel D-Day, that's, they came up with the term D-Day, Day of Combat Initiation, and HH, specific time, those were first used during these battles. After World War One ended in 1918, Silas went home, and it was here he met a woman named Edith Helene Haddon. She was a direct descendant of John Alvord, who was a Revolutionary War hero. When she met Cy, she was a professional dancer with the Caliph School of Dance in New York. She was a featured dancer at Carnegie Hall from 1916 to 1918. Eventually, she opened a children's dance studio in her parents' house in Scarsdale, New York. She was reportedly over six feet tall, and Cy was tall as well. I don't know exactly how tall he was, but I know he was over six feet tall. He knew right away that he was in love with her and that he needed to marry her. So it wasn't very far into their courtship that he proposed to her and they married in 1919. Cy finally began to practice law in 1920. He spent two years with New York title insurance company. He clerked for the New York Supreme Court Justice Frederick Close. And then he joined his father's practice in 1923. So he got a little experience and then he came back to hang with his dad. Cy and Edith would have three children that were born in the 1920s. Um, The oldest was Raymond Shelton Clark. Next was Theodore Wiles Clark. And the last was Haddon Clark, um, who had no middle name, but this Haddon Clark was born in 1929. In 1941, World War II began and Cy wanted his boys to go to war. Raymond and Theodore, they joined the Army Air Force, both as pilots. They were both very intelligent, kind of real athletic, gung-ho sort of guys. In 1946, Silas was elected mayor of White Plains, New York, which must have made his father quite proud of him. He brought the first Macy's to town, so he did something really good because Macy's is awesome, right? He eradicated many of the city's slums, helping to better the city's reputation. And Edith loved being first lady, and host, she hosted meetings of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Um, it's a service or organization that's lineage-based. Women must be descendants of the U.S. effort towards independence. The couple retired early in 1950. I was just 57. They bought a house and property in Wellfle- Wellfleet, Massachusetts, and moved there. But what I couldn't figure out is why would he only serve as mayor for four years? And why would he leave his law practice at just 57? He must have done really well, or they must have had a lot of money in order for him to be able to do that. Before I move on to the elder Haddon and what went on in his life, let's take just another quick break to hear from the show sponsors. Haddon Clark was born in 1929, the youngest of three boys to Silas and Edith Clark. When Haddon was just 16 years old, his father helped him lie to get into the war, and he was shipped to Shanghai, China. So obviously this is World War II. Haddon stayed in Asia for a while after the war ended in 1946. But why would he stay in Asia after the war? It seems a little bit strange. Well, once he finally came back from the war, he met his future wife, Flavia Ann Scranton, who was born in 1930. She was from a long line of statesmen, and she received an upper-crust private school education, followed by college at Wells College. Haddon decided to serve during the Korean War, um, leaving his wife, Flavia, and son Bradfield behind. Remember Bradfield from the first episode? Bradfield was born October 1950, so he left Flavia and his son Bradfield behind while he went off to Korea to fight in the Korean War. The Korean War lasted from June 25, 1950 to July 27, 1953. Anyone who has been in a combat situation or really any type of war situation runs a much higher risk of developing PTSD than your average non-combat scene person. In a 2018 article, the authors talk about um, PTSD in Korean War vets, and they did a survey of a couple hundred Korean War vets, and of those that were assessed, 74% of those vets that were seeking treatment presented with PTSD symptoms. Other studies estimate that the percentages of Korean War vets with PTSD are anywhere um, between 26 and 33 percent. PTSD is not an acute illness that presents immediately following a traumatic event. Instead, PTSD has gradual escalating effects on the psychological and physical health of the affected individual. PTSD causes changes in the gray matter of the limbic system, hyperarousal of the sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system, dysregulation of cortisol, and shortening of telomeres. PTSD should be thought of as a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. So here's a little something for you folks who are interested in the scientific basis of PTSD. Well, here's what the impact of post-traumatic stress disorder has on the brain. First, it causes an increased activity in a structure called the amygdala. The amygdala is responsible for processing emotions such as fear, anger, and pleasure. It's also in charge of like cataloging and filing away memories where the memory is stored depends upon the magnitude of the emotional response that accompanied that memory. So if it's a traumatic memory, then that thing, that memory, that thing, that memory is going to be huge. It's going to be of a higher magnitude, and it will then be filed away and cataloged and called back on very regularly. The amygdala is also critical for our fear response or fight or flight response, and it's the first structure. It's the first structure that will activate to a potential danger, and it activates in response to something you might see, something you hear, something you smell. These are all. Um, these all can trigger a fight or flight response from the amygdala when the amygdala is activated. And in PTSD, the amygdala, like I said, is increased in volume and it's hyperactivated. So the amygdala will signal another structure called the hypothalamus. What's interesting, just kind of as a side note, is that the amygdala um, is linked to aggression and it's also larger in males in general. PTSD also decreases the volume of structures called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is involved in the formation of new memories and is actually the first structure that's affected in Alzheimer's patients. These structures are also involved in different types of mental illnesses. The hippocampus and as part of the temporal lobe is involved in different types of mental illness and it shrinks in patients with severe depression and in schizophrenics. Interestingly, The hippocampus is directly affected by estrogen. Not to be confused with the hippocampus is the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is kind of that big wig among your endocrine organs. It's located sort of um, above and right behind where your optic nerves cross. It can be considered the boss of the endocrine system. And along with these duties of being a boss... The hypothalamus is also heavily involved in fear, rage, and in the autonomic responses to fear and rage. The hypothalamus is also responsible for male sexual behavior. All right, but what really is a fight or flight response? Fight or flight means that the sympathetic nervous system is engaged. And the sympathetic nervous system is engaged based upon so the amygdala will respond to fear and it will send a signal to the hypothalamus indicating that there's some sort of stressor um, that you need to watch out for. And the hypothalamus then will trigger or turn on sympathetic nerves. Those sympathetic nerves then release a hormone called norepinephrine. And norepinephrine along with epinephrine are our body's sort of uh, natural adrenalines norepinephrine targets um, the heart, and it increases the rate of the heart contraction, how quickly the heart contracts, and it also will increase the force of contraction. So as you go into a sympathetic state, your heart rate gets stronger and faster, right, Till it feels like it's beating out of your chest. Norepinephrine also increases blood flow to your muscles so that way you can get the hell out of Dodge if you need to or you can stay and fight. It increases your cognitive ability and your muscle strength. At the same time, this is happening. Sympathetic nerves also go to the adrenal gland. And adrenal, what do you think adrenal stands for? Adrenaline, right? So the adrenal gland, along with some other hormones, it makes epinephrine and then in smaller amounts, norepinephrine. So when those sympathetic nerves activate this area of the adrenal glands, they cause copious amounts of epinephrine and norepinephrine to dump into the the bloodstream. And so norepinephrine and epinephrine are simply going to continue increasing that fight-or-flight response. So as a result of post-traumatic stress disorder, you can anticipate the following sorts of things. There's an increase in activity in the amygdala, an increase in volume in the amygdala, or amygdala, there are two of them. This hyperactivity of the amygdala um, means that you stay in a hyper state, like a hyper-stimulated state, just waiting for the next thing, the next shoe to drop, the next bomb to go off, the next whatever it is that caused the trauma. Um, now, what happens is sounds, sights, smells that were not specifically present during the trauma or had nothing to do with the trauma can still trigger that that, um, PTSD response. So at the same time all of this is happening, you get a decreased volume of the gray matter of the hippocampus, right? And so the hippocampus is important for helping with the storage of memories and you get, when the decrease in a volume of the hippocampus, you're going to see a decrease in the ability to effectively respond to new threats and a decrease in the ability to form new, more positive memories. So the amygdala is on hyper speed, right? It's waiting to fire at any moment. Now the hippocampus is dulled. It's gotten smaller. It's decreased in size. So you get stuck in this sort of not being able to respond to a new threat, a new experience as quickly or effectively as you may have once been able to. PTSD also leads to a decreased volume of the gray matter of the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which results in a decrease in the ability to regulate emotional responses to fear you get a constant hyperarousal of the sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system, which means your body's in a constant state of fight or flight. So I've got some mild PTSD. And if somebody comes at me, even if I see them coming, if they move directions really quickly, or if um, a sound happens out like behind me, even if it happens in front of me, I jump, right? So I love haunted houses because the the... Goblins and ghoulies will chase me around because I jump and scream like a maniac. Not that PTSD makes you a maniac, but I scream and jump around like a maniac. Finally, in PTSD, you get dysregulation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So this is this pathway which causes the release of a stress hormone called cortisol. So you've got epinephrine, you've got norepinephrine, you've got cortisol, all just cruising through your body and really keeping your body in a state of hyperarousal. Having PTSD does not make you a wife beater. However, however, they found that there is a um in this in an article that was published in 2014, it was titled High Risk of Military Domestic Violence on the Home Front. They stated that 21% of domestic violence is attributed to combat vets with PTSD and that 80% of the vets diagnosed with PTSD reported engaging in at least one act of violence in the year prior to the time of the assessment. In a recent article in 2017, it was published in the journal Aggression and Violent Behavior, the authors state that within the first year following a soldier's return, 48% of combat vets with PTSD reported engaging in physical aggression, with 20% having engaged in severe violence. So why am I telling you all this? Because if the elder Haddon was in Korea and was exposed to combat, or even you don't even have to be directly exposed to combat, what is the likelihood of him having PTSD and bringing that back to the States, to his wife Flavia, and his son Bradfield, and then his eventual other children. The elder Haddon returned from Korea and he earned an MBA and also a PhD in chemistry from Rensselaer Polytech. Over the course of the next few seven years or so after Haddon returned from Korea, the couple Flavia Flavia and Haddon had three more children Haddon Irving Clark was born in 1952, Jeffrey Scranton Clark was born in 1955, and Allison Clark was born in 1959. Haddon, the elder Haddon, had a difficult time staying in one job, so the family moved at least a couple times a year, which, as we talked about with Bradfield, that moving a child so much during their adolescence in school can really have a negative impact on their, their psychological Um, development and well-being. The Elder Haddon had a lot of difficulties just all around. When he would get upset, he'd go hide in the garden shed. The Elder Haddon was really pretty intelligent. He improved cling wrap for a petroleum company, and he improved fire retardants and carpeting for selenase, but he made no royalties off of it. He and Flavia were alcoholics, and they would fight loudly and often resort to physical fights. In the first episode, I talked about Bradfield Clark and the murder of Trish Mack. We're going to come back to Haddon Irving Clark in a little while, but before we go on to Haddon, we're going to talk about, to the younger Haddon, we're going to talk about Jeffrey, the third son. Jeffrey was born in 1955. He, of the three boys, was considered the intellectual one, because of course, who would count a female as being one of the intellectual? So Jeffrey was the smart one, and Bradfield and Haddon were interested in sports. When he was a kid, when Jeff was a kid, he and Haddon had been out riding bicycles, and Haddon crashed into him on purpose. Jeff landed on his head. Haddon went home and told, and we're going to talk a lot more about Haddon most of the series here. I think it's going to be like six, seven, eight parts. Most of that's going to be about Haddon. So when the two of them were out riding bikes, Haddon knocked him off knocked Jeff off of his bike on purpose, Jeff landed on his head. Of course, he wasn't wearing a helmet. Hadn't went home and told his mother not to worry because the bike was fine. Jeff grew up in this house of violent alcoholics, where he experienced domestic violence um, on a regular basis. And then he had a head injury that probably did not get any treatment. So we can guess what kind of fellow Jeff turned out to be. Jeff married his first wife, Marcia Kay, in 1975 after they both dropped out of college. Jeff went back and finished his degree in microbiology in 1977 from Ohio State University in Columbus, and then he got a job with the FDA with the Food and Drug Administration in Medical Devices in Bethesda, Maryland. He and his wife, Marcia, quickly began a family. They had three children born just four years apart. The eldest was John Scott, born in April of 1978. Next, Jacob Stewart, born in August of 1979. And finally, Eliza Rose, who was born in January of 1981. After seven years of marriage, Jeff and Marcia separated, and the kids stayed with Jeff in the house because he would not let them leave with their mother. Jeff said he would not pay child support if she tried to take them away from him. There were multiple accounts of alleged child abuse at the hands of Jeff. When John was five, Jeff allowed him to tape pictures of nearly naked women up on the refrigerator. John would throw things. He'd hit his siblings. He'd sometimes talk by making animal noises. By age 10, John was suicidal and had behavioral issues. Jeff refused to take him one summer because of his issues. So he didn't want to pay child support. He didn't want Marcia to have the children, but he didn't want John because John was a problem. At one point, Jeff beat Marsha so badly that he was arrested and given a 24-month suspended sentence during which he was to stay away from Marsha, but two months after his probation ended, he beat her up again. Jeff had physically and sexually abused all three children. The children were not allowed to see or speak to or to be spoken to about their great-grandmother Edith. No idea why. Jeff was diagnosed with manic depression, with substance abuse of marijuana. Uh, Apparently, he would smoke around the children, like in his car, that sort of thing. Then in 1985, his older brother Haddon showed up at his door. And we're going to leave Jeff's story there. Reportedly, Allison was bothered by the amount of attention that her older brother Haddon received, and she ran away from home. She spent 12 months in in a psychiatric ward, but eventually she left home and never looked back. When asked years later what it was like to grow up in the Clark household, she said she'd never had a family. So that paints a little bit of a picture of what life was like for the Clarks. The Clark household was no doubt a toxic and violent environment for these children to grow up in. According to the National child traumatic stress network, physical abuse can cause children to struggle with developing and maintaining friendships. They won't trust authority figures. They won't feel good about themselves or see themselves as learning, as worthy. They'll lose their fight or flight response. Studies show that children with childhood maltreatment exhibit changes in their brain, in the structure of their brain. And this, these changes have to do with regulation and the ability to accurately attrib- attribute thoughts or intentions to others and with enhanced centrality in regions involved in internal emotional perception, self-referential thinking, and self-awareness. So let's stop and talk just for a minute about the rates of post-traumatic stress disorder from violence uh, during your childhood. While sexual abuse victims, childhood sexual abuse victims, between 42 and 90% of them reportedly have PTSD. If you witness domestic violence, anywhere between 50 to 100% of children who witness domestic violence develop signs and symptoms of PTSD. And finally, um, children who underwent physical abuse as they grew up, 50% of those will suffer from PTSD. When children are exposed to trauma, one of the things that happens is there is dysregulation of the limbic hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. And what that means, we didn't really talk about this um, in detail earlier, but this pathway is triggered during a fight-or-flight response. So the hypothalamus will activate sympathetic nerves that then in turn will will trigger the sympathetic nerves to release norepinephrine. Norepinephrine then is going to go to those various organs and places that we talked about earlier to help to further um, get that fight or flight response going. Now the other thing that's going to happen is a hormone called corticotropin releasing hormone is going to be released from the hypothalamus. It's then going to go to the posterior pituitary gland where it triggers the release of another hormone. And that final hormone there is going to go to the adrenal gland. Now it's going to a different part of the adrenal glands and it's going to stimulate the release of cortisol. Cortisol is the pesky stress hormone, but it, when it's activated, it holds on to, um, holds on to fat inflammation, these sorts of things. So having huge levels of cortisol running through your body are not great, mostly because, Of the systemic inflammation that it can cause. Living in a violent home, dripping in alcoholics, has got to lead to some amount of chronic stress. And chronic stress seems to lead to a decrease in serotonin levels, in the medial prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, another area called the nucleus accumbens, and the lateral hypothalamus, which results in, this is interesting, learned helplessness. Low serotonin is also associated with suicidal and aggressive behavior in children. There are certain sensitivity periods that we go through throughout development where we're particularly vulnerable to maltreatment. The hippocampus volume is affected, is most affected between ages three and five and eleven and fifteen. Um, another area called the inferior longitudinal fasciculus is most vulnerable between ages 7 and 9 and 11 and 15. And so you might be thinking, what the F is the inferior longitudinal fasciculus? <laughs> exactly. So it's involved in thought disorders, visual emotion, cognitive impairments, and, and other types um, of symptoms. The amygdala, the right amygdala in particular, it's most vulnerable between ages 9 and 13. So these early years are critical that you that your children are not exposed to violence, nor are they do they receive any violence. Finally, the prefrontal cortex, the gray matter in the prefrontal cortex, is al- always vulnerable, but is particularly at high risk from ages 13 to 18. The, the prefrontal cortex is important in inhibiting impulses, and it allows us to exhibit proper social behavior. So, not watching your brother fall off onto his head and going back home and telling your mother that the bicycle was okay. Exposure to violence has led to decreased volume or is, is associated with a decreased volume in gray matter of the prefrontal cortex. And what the prefrontal cortex does is it's, um, it's um, important in helping to inhibit inappropriate impulses. Um, it helps us to exhibit proper social behavior And part of that, a smaller part of that prefrontal cortex, is involved in understanding changes in the value of a reward. So with the reward, like, so that if there's damage to this orbital frontal cortex, you'll get an increase in risky behavior with the absence of anxiety around the behavior. So you'll do stupid things and not worry about what might happen as a result. Now, an an even smaller part of this prefrontal cortex called the medial prefrontal cortex, This is where the extinction of the fear response happens. And a little tidbit that might be important is that somatic markers, and these are feelings in the body that you associate with emotion, like rapid heart rate and anxiety, nausea with disgust, These are processed in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and amygdala. And if you want to see where those things are, go to my website, um, skbpod.com, and I've got a brain blog on there, which I've got pictures of brains and stuff circled and labeled, and I have an explanation of what all the different parts of the brain do. So that's all there if you're interested in reading more about it or seeing, seeing what it is I'm talking about. So the somatic markers are processed in this area of the brain, and... The hypothesis, the somatic uh, marker hypothesis, is that emotional processes guide our behavior and decision making, which makes sense. And childhood maltreatment is associated with um, something called, it's like a decreased centrality, which is connectedness or importance in regions involved in emotional regulation. So what this ends up this ends up looking like is someone who does not have the ability to accurately attribute thoughts or intentions to other people. However, there will be enhanced centrality in regions that are involved in internal emotional perception, self-referential thinking, and self-awareness. Maltreatment is also associated with increased centrality, which just means increased connectedness between the, the different areas. Increased centrality in areas involved with self-awareness, these are the the precuneus and the in the um, anterior insula. And again, if you want to see where these structures are, there you can find them on the website. So the precuneus is a major component of something called the default mode network, and it's involved in self-referential thinking. So this is a tendency to put um, to look at something that's really innocuous and think that it has some kind of specific meaning for the self, and it's associated with personality traits and disorders. Um, also, self-centered mental imagery. Often it's associated with uh, somebody like damage to the precuneus is associated, precuneus is associated with um, narcissistic personality. The anterior insula contains an interoceptive representation that provides the basis for all subjective feelings in the body. And it's often activated in conjunction with another area of the brain. And together they form as kind of this in-between between between the limbic um, system and sensory and motor cortexes. And it somehow links them together and it puts feelings to motivation so it connects feelings and motivations to one another and many have argued that the anterior insula provides a critical substrate for self-awareness so this is where this is where self-awareness is rooted when children are exposed to domestic violence there's some things that you can expect or you wouldn't you shouldn't be surprised if you see because children learn destructive lessons about the use of violence and power in relationships. So short-term effects of viewing domestic violence. Birth to age 5, increased aggression, sleeping and eating disruptions, intense anxiety and fear. Age 6 to 11, nightmares, aggression, difficulty with peer groups, peer relationships, difficulty with concentration and task completion, withdrawal and or emotional numbing. Age 12 to 18, you'll start to see antisocial, you can start to see antisocial behavior, school failure, impulsive reckless behavior, substance abuse, running away, violent or abusive dating relationships, depression, anxiety, withdrawal. Well, I think that's just about enough talk about abuse for one episode. So join me next time as I introduce you to Haddon Irving Clark. This has been SKB Dissecting Serial Killer Brains. I'm your host, Caroline, University Biology Professor and True Crime Junkie. Follow me on most of your social media platforms at SKB Pod. Check out my website at www.skbpod.com. And until next time, thanks for joining me on my inquiry into evil. should know better it was dark and i was in love or whatever